Today's podcast is presented by Podco. Podco is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast and I'm so excited that I discovered it. As an indie podcaster, it allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate and so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podco. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o and be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application. everyone welcome back to another episode of immigrantly i know i say this a lot about our guests and i am going to say it again but truly i mean it each time today we have two very 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 special guests talking to us now those of you who tune in either every week or every other week to listen to immigrantly stories you know that our platform has grown so much over the past couple of years and I would like to think that we've welcomed people from all walks of life and in a way acted as a microphone for important stories from the ordinary to the extraordinary. At times, I am even caught off guard by how much we've accomplished together as individuals, as listeners who are curious to learn to make sense of this complicated yet rich experience that we call being human, right? On Immigrantly, we've spoken to so many people who've talked about duality of their existence, identity, who've talked about their resilience, vulnerability, how they've carved out new place and space in a new society, in a new country. And I'm part of that narrative because it's my lived experience as well. But today's guests and their story is a lot more sensitive, daunting and unique in nature. And I ask you to lend a listening ear and empathetic heart. Now you may feel confused and angered, called to action or simply quiet because the subject is novel. But I want you to bear with me. So here we go. Karina Klaff and Ekaterina are both stateless. Karina has a birth certificate with Odessa as the birthplace, but both ones under the USSR. Ekaterina immigrated to the US on a Soviet passport, cash 22 in all this. Their forms of identification rendered them as belonging to the Soviet Union, a nation that no longer exists. There is so much wrong with this situation. It seems to be this this perfect storm of unfortunate time and place. But here's my take on this story. I think it points to something more implicative of things we can control from upholding basic human rights to adopting accessible, fair paths to citizenship. And as countries, societies, even individuals, We are failing to do that. Now, I am not an expert on this matter. I cannot even relate to the experiences of these two guests. 
but this interview was undoubtedly a teaching moment and i am in awe of karina and ekaterina's bravery resilience weakness vulnerability fear i think all those emotions are important to own and it's stories like these that keep me going and i hope i really hope it touches you wherever you are this beautiful incredible moving strong story and i hope that in a way you feel more gracious and cognizant so let's get started Welcome Karina and Ekaterina to Immigrantly. I am extremely excited to have both of you here. Thank you so much Sadia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So normally I know how to begin the interview or where to start, but I'll be honest today I'm struggling a bit because what we are going to talk about is so critical to the basic idea of human dignity and yet the issue itself is invisible we don't hear about it um i have worked in the human rights space for a long time and unfortunately statelessness was never part of my consciousness which is sad because i've worked with refugees i worked with asylum seekers i have worked with persecuted populations but this is something that is an invisible problem so i want to start with the basics can you explain what it legally means to be stateless and share how one can become stateless whether here in the US or abroad without question statelessness is often referred to as a kind of an invisible issue statelessness is a global human rights problem that affects people in nearly every country on the planet a stateless person by definition is someone who is not considered a national by any state under the operation of its law In other words a stateless person is someone who has no country no nationality and every country on the planet would consider and treat them as a foreigner imagine that mm. estimated 15 million people worldwide are in fact stateless in terms of how it happens i'd say that most people would agree that cases of statelessness occur as a result of a discrimination of one type or another so um laws and practices that are discriminatory whether it's gender based religion based ethnicity or race based are the main drivers of statelessness of course additional factors such as shifting borders or when whole countries dissolve and become replaced with other countries and this is called um state succession mm. as well as lack of proper birth registration practices can all be major factors um sometimes nationality laws of countries can be at conflict with one another so how nationality is obtained for example in the united states people can be born into being an american or if they're born to american citizens these are the two pathways that us right. employees um, but in other countries sometimes they can conflict and that result in statelessness um but it is important to remember that we are talking about human beings right and while on the surface this mm. may sound as such a technical a term and a complicated situation what we're talking about is human beings who find themselves living their lives without protection of any country with no legal identity and right. there's quite often mm. no way out of the situation because many many countries do not have protective mechanisms to allow stateless person to get their nationality back i wanted to add that 
in the United States, statelessness appears in so many different ways. But, you know, we are a huge diversity between different experiences and voices and backgrounds. And just last year, a groundbreaking report came out by the Center for Migration Studies. And that report estimated there are over 200,000 stateless people and at-risk state people that are at risk of statelessness in the United States. You know, and a diversity speaks for mm. it in the data where we are in the U.S. We represent from over 30 different countries and territories of the world. And this looks really different than what statelessness appears in other areas of the world, where there's a specific ethnicity, specific race or sex that is targeted. Mm. You know, and further in the U.S., you know, there's multiple ways a person, a stateless person appears in the U.S. or comes to the U.S. You know, we are asylum seekers that were denied claim. You know, some of us came on visa, tourist or you know, student. Some of us are refugees. Some of us have temporary protective statuses. We're victims of human trafficking. At one point in our lives, we were unaccompanied minors. Mm. You know, statelessness is at the center of the displacement in the U.S. And there is no legal framework to acknowledge the issue. So United Nations has two conventions, the 1954 Convention on Status of Stateless and then the 1961 convention, which aims to prevent statelessness and reduce it over time. And it does require states to establish safeguards in their nationality laws to prevent statelessness at birth and later in life. But sometimes I feel like despite having these conventions and hoping that countries will ratify them and be signatories to these conventions, I don't see many countries working towards that goal. Why do you think it is so inconvenient for different nation states to solve this issue? If we think about the human rights framework, the global human rights framework, and if we think about United Nations, I mean, even the term United Nations, it's representative of United Nations, right? So the interests of countries will be always superseding those than the interests of non-countries. Right. And in case of statelessness, we're talking about human beings who are literally left without the protection of countries. They're not linked or bonded to any state. So as a consequence, I mean, that could be definitely, mm. I believe, considered as one of the contributing causes, you know. So until very recently, there has been very little advocacy on behalf of stateless persons, but this is starting to change. So there are definitely global initiatives, including, of course, UNHCR, who are mandated by the United Nations to protect stateless persons. But the work is definitely um, starting to pick up on that end. Ekaterina, I want to go back to how or why both of you are considered stateless and what aspects of your past led you to this point? Um, sure. Thank you, Sadia. Um, well, um, as to my own story, I was born in Soviet Central Asia, but um, have lived in the United States since age 16. I originally came here as an exchange student, a high school student. And what happened was that during my school year, my family back home, who belonged to an ethnic minority, panicked hmm. because the country, right, our home country, was in crisis due to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. 
So they urged me to try to continue my studies here because they feared for my safety if I were to return. Now, mm -hmm. um, to be separated like this was a very intense thing to go through for my mother and I especially because we were always very close. I was very young, living on my own as a teenager, trying to survive and very quickly found myself undocumented. Now, in the meantime, mm. back home, policies were created that required special consular registrations with a deadline, right, in order for people who were abroad to maintain their nationality. Now, many persons, including myself, did not know about this and were stripped of their nationality or citizenship as a result. Now, I have been paying taxes in the United States for over 20 years. I love to swim. I'm an artist, community volunteer. In fact, I was once even nominated for a Citizen of the Year Award in my town for working with young people. But on the other hand, I've also been separated from everyone in my family for more than 27 years. Hmm. I have no right to legally work, hmm. travel by airplane, no right to health care, and I have never voted. And there's also the fear of detention, and that is constant. So I've been living as a stateless person in the United States for more than 20 years. And from my understanding, you can't even apply for asylum because you are stateless. So in order for you to apply, you should be citizen of some other country, correct? Precisely, precisely. So I'm just baffled by this. It's so confounding and it is so intense. Is there any way out of this then? Like, how do you move forward? When I first realized that I was stateless, hmm. truly realized the meaning of the word, right? It was um, in 2014 when I tried to self-deport myself back to my country because I found out that um, my father was hmm. terminally ill. And when I couldn't do so, I mean, I was denied deportation since there's no country to deport me to, since my home country no longer exists, hmm. right? The Soviet Union and the new country doesn't recognize me as a national. It really, the meaning of the word statelessness for the first time truly sunk in. I began to look for answers, but very little information was available at the time. And when I first connected with other stateless persons, including Karina, it was then that some kind of a hope began to germinate, right? Because up until that moment, the realization that oh, there are no laws, there are no solutions, and there is absolutely nothing for you that exists, not only, I mean, you, you, you depend on your immediate community, of course, you know, and you have connections to friends. And after 20 years of living in a particular area and, and, and dropping roots, you have that, you know, if you're lucky. I mean, some people live very, very isolated lives, but I was very fortunate. But, but it is through that connection with other stateless persons, and especially, you know, if we were to go back to the beginning of United Stateless as an organization, you know, when we sat down for the first time and brainstormed mm. together as a group as to what can be done, you know, that's the, the, the first thing that came up for us was, you know, aside from let's connect and tell stories and, 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 uh, and have that moment of communion and community with each other, was we need to change the legal framework in the United States to address this. And it's important to change the narrative around it, right? And to make it more visible. Karina, I want to talk about your story. I was listening to your story corpse story with your husband, and it was so profound. And there are so many questions I could ask based on that conversation. But I want to start with how 
you became stateless? I became stateless when, very similar to Ekaterina, because the country I was born in doesn't exist anymore. And the country that replaced it Mm. does not recognize me as its national. And even further, you know, um, my parents have the same problem, right? You know, they were born in two different countries and they don't recognize them as their nationals. And those laws don't even apply to me. You know, by the time I was eight years old, I lived in four different countries. None of their nationality laws apply to me. I was four years old when I left my country of birth. And, you know, in my four-year-old memory, that was a time I was taking a train, a big boat, a plane, and it was very overwhelming to me. Sometimes I hear, you know, my parent friends share with, you know, with me how important it is to keep their toddlers in a schedule. And, you know, I didn't have a schedule at that time. At four years old, Mm. I was unsafe and largely dangerous place. And I had to leave. You know, at eight years old, I applied for asylum before U.S. immigration authorities. And my claim was denied three times. So by the time of the final decision, I six years have gone by. I was 13 years old. I was put on removal proceedings to self-deport. And the country that I thought was my home didn't want me anymore. You know, I felt like I was being rejected. And I did not know what that meant. You know, especially when I'm sitting in the Ukrainian embassy, you know, holding my birth certificate, my Soviet Ukrainian birth certificate. And I'm being told Mm -hmm. that they cannot issue me a travel documentation because we don't know who you are. You know, even though, you know, the same street, you know, that I was born on, you know, that, that, that location, my family, my grandparents are buried there. My great grandparents are buried there. You know, I have deep roots. You know, I was four years old when I left the country. I remember, you know, I have memories of my area, you know, very small, but they're there. And I just didn't know what that meant. What do you mean you don't recognize me? You know, and I, at the time, hmm. I internalized a lot of my trauma into an eating disorder. Because I felt like I was able to control that. You know, there was nowhere I could turn to for help. It wasn't possible for me to confide with my high school guidance counselor or, you know, or talk to my high school lacrosse coach. It was an unsafe place for me. I remember vividly watching Mm. Nightly News and seeing mass deportations under the, you know, Bush era and feeling, you know, the signs of what I knew was a panic attack because I was like, wow, that could happen to me. And I lived in fear and got used to it. And once I was able to get used to it, I tried to bury it. You know, I, the only supporting documents I had to self-identify at one point was my Soviet birth certificate of a country that no longer exists and my high school ID. So I kind of just got used to navigating it. You know, I suppressed my trauma to deal with the reality, even when I became diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is a chronic condition you know, that forces me to rely on medical help to live. And, you know, the moment was the lowest point in my life, but somehow I kept moving on, moving forward. I rely on help from my small community, from strangers, sometimes in the most unexpected places. Um, At 24 years old, you know, again, during this entire time, the word stateless never came to me. It was never presented to me. You know, back mm. when, when our lawyer, my lawyer, you know, when I was eight years old, was processing um, my asylum claim, my nationality was never screened, you know? So it was never a mm. question of lack of nationality or being a citizen of nowhere. It just wasn't information I was relied to. So when at 24 years old, my then boyfriend and I decided that we wanted to get married, 
Um, my husband and I, you know, we were advised by that same lawyer that represented my asylum case, my and my family asylum claim, that all we needed to do to adjust is to get married. That huh. was very wrong. And we made the decision to seek counsel out elsewhere. And thanks to our longtime friend and lawyer, David Benyon of the Free Migration Project, um, we learned more about my case and my story and my statelessness. And that was the beginning of like me opening this like deeper understanding of what exactly am I? You know, up to that point, you know, to echo what Ekaterina said earlier, I've never met anyone with what I used to call my immigration problem, right? I never met anyone that was mm-hmm. what is now I know is stateless. I never met any outside of my immediate family. And that was when I started to learn, to research, to Google stateless, right? Like to understand it. That's when mm-hmm. I started reading, you know, the UNHCR mandate on statelessness. I started reading and understanding, you know, statelessness history in the United States. Right. Like there was this amazing, for instance, academic paper I read about this, you know, the suggestion and rightfully so that the first stateless people in the U.S. were the enslaved people because they did Mm. not have a root. Right. I mean, it fits the definition. No root, you know, no documentation of birth, unable to access your rights because you are not seen as a citizen. Right. And it it like opened up my eyes a lot and maybe understand my issue. And then that gateway into United Stateless. And what that means to have met other people for the first time that have your experience, that share your experience, realizing that, wow, I am not alone in this. And I am meeting someone that has the same problem as me. And it it just became a natural conversation that we grew into, you know, wanting a mission, wanting to resolve this for ourselves. But now we're finding out there's other people that we can work together with and to resolve this issue for. So, Karina, what would reformation or resolution look like? I always say this because luckily there's so much information, so much suggestions around this issue, right? Like it exists. The plans are out there. And what it looks like for the U.S. Mm. is for the United States Congress and government to take a step into recognizing statelessness. And that starts with adopting the international definition. Then it starts Mm. with, you know, going by the UNHCR handbook, the best practices that exist among, you know, U.S. allies like France and U.K. into adopting a stateless status determination and to take the steps Mm -hmm. necessary for someone to claim their statelessness. So a good example of saying this is that statelessness doesn't happen when, for instance, you know, I lose my passport, I become stateless, right? That's not how it works. It works when, you know, nationality laws are passed with specific nationality laws, right, that exclude people. For instance, Ukraine, between the, you know, between steps from being Soviet Ukraine to becoming the Republic of Ukraine, they passed nationality law that excludes me, right? And in other areas of the world, these are way even more specific. You know, they're specific to ethnicity, to gender, to, you know, religious background. Like we can look into history and World War II, you know, Nazi Germany passed nationality laws prohibiting certain citizens from being claimed as citizens, right? And the idea of stateless status determination looks into a process where those said, not, you know, all evidence is gathered by the person claiming stateless status. All that is looked for, governments are literally asking other governments, do you consider them to be a citizen? And the answer is most likely no, right? 
then that person is approved stateless status, and then they're protected with in the U.S. with what we want to call uh, with with what's called lawful permanent residency and LPR. And we would like to further allow stateless people under lawful permanent residency protection to be able to apply to a nationality. Those are solutions. And you know, our goal is also to prevent statelessness from continuing to happen in the U.S. So I also want to talk about the security that comes with belonging to a state or allegiance to a particular state, because people who are listening may not fully understand what it means or comprehend what it means to be stateless in terms of barriers or issues that people come across that legal residents don't. So let's talk about that. What are some of the issues or barriers you've come across and what security would that status give you? Definite barriers and there are definite problems that people who are not citizens of any country face. Um, And these problems range vastly and in some cases they translate literally into a situation like genocide, right? Um, I will speak to this in the context of uh, a stateless person's experience here in the United States. Many stateless persons lack identification Mm -hmm. documents. So without an ID, it is extremely difficult to get through your daily life. You can't pick up medicine at the pharmacy can't pick up your kid from school. You can't open a bank account or access most services. You're left with very limited resources. Choices literally become limited. You you have very, very few choices. So it is like living in the little box, right? It's really, really tight and your ceiling is very low and your expectations drop as well. Mm. So psychologically, of course, uh, stateless people, we are very, very impacted by that, right? Of course, family separation is a huge deal. For example, in, in my experience, my mom and I, we haven't seen each other in 27 years. We FaceTime and, you know, I try not to feel things too deeply. She doesn't also, but because it's easier that way. But sometimes we just end up crying. Mm. We literally like sit there and cry without even having to say a word. Time, time is a precious resource, right? And it is irreplaceable, and you, you're only given so much. Um, so speak a little bit to this experience. We've, we're all going through the pandemic right now, and many of us, most of us, have experienced now what right. it's like to not to be able to see your family and only to be able to Zoom with them or FaceTime. Imagine if you are very close to your family, you having to go through that for 30 years, and that's your only option. Um, another thing, of course, average person doesn't live in a constant fear of being put in an immigration detention. But this is something that stateless persons are always, always either in fear of, they're either currently detained or are living in post-release conditions, which that is a whole other territory that we can go into what what that life is like, where you have arbitrary check-ins with uh, immigration officers. You are constantly required to, to be continuously providing proof that you are seeking nationality in other countries. And pause for a moment and just consider that the definition of statelessness is someone who is not considered a national. The definition itself carries with it a negative. So when, you, when you're asked to prove that you're not a national of any country, think of the burden of proof that that uh, implies. It's vast. 
Yeah, so, so you have people who are constantly trying to prove that they're not a national of any country in the world, right? And it's the psychological, that is a psychological weight. And, you know, if you look at any detention center and ask who has been detained the longest, most likely, nearly always, you're going to get an answer that that is a stateless person because there's nowhere to deport them to, right? So people sometimes stay in detention for a very, very long time. And I'm talking months, in some cases, even years. Ekaterina, what is really ironic about the situation is that being stateless still means that you have to fulfill obligations of that country, right? You've talked about paying taxes, and yet you're deprived of all the rights. Exactly. Exactly. That is very, very true. Uh, I mean, we have folks in, you know, in our community who are seniors. Yeah, I mean, most people, most of us have given so much to this country. Yeah, I mean, I love this country. You know, we're taxpayers, contributors, but like you said, lack nearly all the rights. We have folks who have been paying taxes for decades and they will never be able to access their social security benefits because they're stateless. It's, uh, it's devastating. Absolutely. What compelled both of you to finally speak up and share this incredible story of yours? What was the trigger? Stateless people that we're coming into contact, that, you know, the stateless community, you know, we've been in the United States, not, and we're not talking about two, three years, we're talking about 28 years, you know, we're talking about decades. So it, it's, it's not a problem that is new. It's a problem that's been here for a long time. And mm -hmm. what really compelled me to start talking about it is that came a moment for me that I felt like I have nothing to lose. And I feel a sense of honor and privilege to be able to speak on this issue. You know, I will never get back the 28 years and counting mm. that I am, I have spent and I'm currently living as a stateless person. And I often ask myself, you know, what is the meaning of my life? What does it all mean? And that something to me is United Stateless, our growing community and our mission and how we work towards it. Karina, I was listening to your interview, as I mentioned, you talk about your privilege, which was so impressive because many people would just focus on their suffering and their struggles. But you recognize the fact that, yes, you're stateless, but then you're white. And that brings some degree of privilege, which other stateless people would probably be deprived of those who are at the intersection of a different religion or different ethnicity, skin color. It is just incredible to reconcile those two different aspects of your life right now, recognizing the privilege and also talking about struggles. How do you do that? There's as painful as statelessness has been for me. And it's like one of those, it's a deep trauma for me, you know, and, and I'm able to talk about it and it's healing for me to talk about it in, you know, this context and, you know, it is, and it's, I have to feel those emotions. Right. But there's some things in this world I will never experience. And that is how to be discriminated against my skin color or discriminated against my accent. You know, I, I just don't know what that's like. And it, mm. it just, in me, and again, meeting other stateless people and learning from them, right? Our system can oppress, you know, through detention and fear because you, you look a certain way and you are, you know, we could talk about the last four years between the Muslim band and, you know, et cetera. 
I think because in this space, I'm constantly having to tell my story, turning my story as an advocacy tool. It's impossible for me not to talk about certain things that I don't get to experience and what gives me more power to talk about it. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm also very much a self-reflectory person and I like to call things and say things the way they are. Um, but thank you for saying that. And I, you know, my, my goal with my privilege is to use it towards the benefit of all stateless people and the benefit of protecting, you know, nationalities. I think that's the meaning of my life. And I think, I think it's important to pave the way and important to do this inclusively and diversely as possible. So let's assume that both of you, hopefully in future, become citizens of U.S. and you're able to travel. What is the first place that you would like to go? I have some idea of where Ekaterina would go, but Karina, where would you like to go first? I want to take my mom to Ukraine for her to visit her parents' grave. My mother was my age. I'll be turning 33 this year. My mother was my age with little four-year-old me when was the last time she saw her parents. And unfortunately, in, through natural causes, time is not a stateless person's friend. My par- my mom, right. she witnessed their deaths across overseas. And this is the time before, you know, Zoom and video calls. So it mm. was heartbreaking. I don't know, you know, and I, I want to have that moment with my mom. You also mentioned about Heritage Tour, because I know you're very proud of your ethnicity. You're Armenian and you take pride in it and you talk about it curiously, but also proudly. So what would that heritage tour look like? To answer that a little differently, my husband um, found this old Soviet Union map specifically of the region that encompasses the region where my heritage is from. And that's, it's mm. an old map from like a, you know, like a venture store he found. And that to me is my, my heritage tour. I want to go to Ukraine and Odessa, but I also want to visit you know, my ancestral homeland from Kars. I want to visit Tbilisi, Georgia, where, you know, my ancestors survived the genocide, were refugees. I want to visit mm-hmm. Armenia. I, I want to visit Yerevan. I want to honor my heritage because a lot of like my strength and my meaning comes from, well, I don't have a nationality to protect me, right? I don't have that, but I have a heritage that is rooted and it doesn't you know, it's it's outside of that. And it fits me perfectly, I think, with being stateless and, you know, finding my meaning. And what is my grounding, you know, motivation on, in this world? Ekaterina, what about you? Oh, gosh. Just listening to Karina talk about this um, really kind of <laughs> touched me pretty deeply just now. Yeah. I mean, if I was able to travel, right? Or when I'm able to travel. I have to think about it in terms of when. <laughs> Let's hope when. When. Let's yes. focus on when. Yes. When I'm able to travel, of course, the first moment I'm able to hold a passport in my hand, I will be at the airport <laughs> uh, boarding the first plane back to Central Asia and um, going, reuniting with my family. Of course, my mom and my sister. Mm. You know, I have not actually, and I'm being completely honest, I have not thought beyond that. I'd love to travel the world, but I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, I used to dream about going to Italy and, and visiting, you know, um, the, just to go to see the art because I, I love art and I'm an artist, but I'd love to travel to India, Africa, just all over the world, you know, just, but of course it's hard to think about the future. It's really hard to think about the future and to really uh, imagine the future beyond the most immediate and, and, and to even 
a dream about going back, you know, to, to be able to travel is, it's almost like a, it's, it's an odd kind of luxury, <laughs> but I have to be you know optimistic mm. and hopeful and hold that as a goal for sure. But that, that yeah, I would be going back. I'd love to, um, and I'd love to spend some time there and really, really, really uh, submerge myself in the culture, you know, and, and go visit the mountains. I'd love to go visit the Central Asian mountains and spend time there because it's just a phenomenal, magical place. I still remember, I have the memories of what it smells like, what the air smells like in the mountains in the summer. And it's unlike anything I've ever experienced since, you know, and it's, mm. those memories are really strong. They don't go away. For both of you, what you're going through and your lived experience, how has this changed your idea about borders, memberships, citizenships? What do you think people should look into or know more about rather than these boundaries that we live within, which are mostly a social construct and can change at any time as nations reconfigure and geopolitics of a place changes? I'd like to go back to the very first opening statement um, that you made, um, Sadia, and that has to do with human dignity. Nationality, right, or membership in, in the community of citizens or a political community such as a state or a country is held up by people as a kind of a shield. You know, we hold, up, hold it up as a shield. It protects us. It allows us to do things. And here we are advocating for the right to nationality, which is the universal human right. However, I think it's really important that we have parallel conversations about why is it that even by virtue of nationality, people still experience suffering in the world? Why is it that nationality isn't necessarily an end-all, be-all solution? You know, we are advocating for mm. equality, right, for equal uh, right to participate in the human community. But we also must mm. remember that we have to look deeper. We have to look deeper, right? And and we have to uphold each other. And there is this incredible experience that uh, we have been going through with United Stateless. And this has to do with the fact that U.S. is a unique country with a statelessness profile reflecting the diverse and rich and vibrant immigrant community here that, you know, having all these stateless people in our community coming from so many different places, literally reflecting the entire world in terms of human community, that there mm. is this shared element, our shared humanity, right? That is a statelessness really kind of shines a light on because here we have all these layers of status stripped away. We literally are stripped of all our rights, essentially just naked human beings standing on the planet going, hello, I'm here. And what does this mean? Right. So I mm -hmm. think this is an in interesting opportunity. And, and, and I'm sure Karina would agree with this, that you know this has made us think about that in terms of human dignity and what it means. And how do we protect that? How do we advocate for human dignity for everyone, not just for the right to mm -hmm. nationality? That's beautiful. Um, are there any resources that you've used to navigate your stateless identity um, or any readings that you recommend to our listeners so that they can look into um, statelessness, learn about it, do some work and unpack the current history that exists? Yeah, I think the biggest resource 
that I use for my stateless status is United Stateless, right? It's each other, it's each other's experiences, it's comparing notes, is sometimes we share tips on how to navigate a certain space. And it is incredibly helpful. And I, I want to encourage us to sign up for our newsletter, sign up, you know, uh, follow us on the socials. We are growing so rapidly. And this year, you know, we talked a little bit about the bill early, uh, you know, the proposed solutions for stateless people in the U.S. And we are, we are proud to have, you know, along with, Mm -hmm. you know, our stories, our voices, we're part of a process to write a bill to address this issue specifically the way, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show. Um, And it is, you know, we're calling it the Stateless Protection Act. And you know, we have opportunities to really navigate and strategize and adapt to the new Congress and new administration for us to find, you know, to pass it into law, which is really important. But the resources that we use, you know, is UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. You know, they have, you know, a, a lot of the best practices based on their conventions you mentioned earlier and some of their, be- you know, accumulated best practices and suggestions, hmm. which is so important for our work. We work a lot with the European Network on Statelessness or ENS, um, Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, ISI, and Radana, America's Network on Nationality and Statelessness. So there's just really rich, you know, organizations and coalitions that come together and identify, yes, this is important. It touches practically every corner of the world. We need to talk about it. We need to share information. And what's unique is that the stateless voice, the impact-led solutions is at the core of that work. You know, our community is open and growing and please reach out to us if there's any questions or, you know, today's show or you want to learn a little bit more, please visit our website. Uh, what's your website, Karina? It is unitedstateless.org. And in the end, I normally ask my guests to describe America and what being American means to them. Feel free to answer that, but I want to know what would citizenship mean to both of you? I'd like to speak a little bit to the to the topic of having allies, right? And and what it, what it feels like to be in America. I've always felt a little bit, you know, when thinking about my situation and just you know, because I do spend a lot of time just sitting around and like feeling things and thinking, <laughs> maybe sometimes a little too much. But and and then also thinking about you know what other people are going through, other stateless persons, because you know. Statelessness does sit at this kind of a at the at, at the intersection of all kinds of human suffering. If, if you were to look at the bigger picture globally, but you know also mm. here in the United States, stateless people often end up experiencing really severe hardships. But at the same time, because we are untethered, you know, from this protective mechanism, if I may, right? We also have had these incredibly, and I I speak for myself, um, I've had these amazing opportunities to come across people who are so impassioned, kind, really, truly that show up fully present, you know, as allies and friends. And um, that as a source of support can never be underestimated. I mean, that is that that is like, like an amazing thing. Because on one hand, you're experiencing extreme hardships. On the other hand, you're experiencing, you're witnessing hum, humanity at its best, which is really mm. interesting. Mm. Um, what would being a citizen mean to me? It would mean freedom, but also probably a greater responsibility. Yeah, and peace, peace of mind. It would mean peace of mind, ultimately, because I will be able to 
Uh, I'll be able to go see my mom, <laughs> my sister, and my niece. And Karina, for you? Having citizenship would mean that I could participate and for the first time in my life vote. It would also mean that I would, for the first time in my life, have a passport. So it's freedom. It's able to not, you know, it's able to participate. It's able to be included. It's a peace of mind. It's also a precedent that would set in the U.S. I'd like to add to that too, because uh, it just keeps starting to come back to me. More like really, the feeling of it. <laughs> um, it would be a life without fear. Yeah, just the life without this ongoing, constant fear that is there. That you know, is this okay for me to speak up? Is this okay for me to say what I mean? Is this okay for me to, you know, I mean, what would my art look like? You know, if I didn't have to live this mm. um you know where would i go what would i do right so this is and it is hard to think about these things it's hard to imagine because it's been such a long time thank you both of you this was great and i would like you both to know how it is a true act of courage and compassion Um, what you're doing. Thank you so much for having us. Sadia, thank you. Thank you. And we will share all your information in our show notes. And if you want to share your social media info, um, why don't you share that with the listeners? Yeah, at United Stateless on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. And Sadia, also maybe if I could just take a moment to suggest a few reading materials too that would be um, that could be really interesting. Uh, if anyone is interested in learning more about statelessness in U.S. context, the Citizens of Nowhere report, which was published by UNHCR in collaboration with David Baluarte and other amazing uh, persons. Um, that that was published in 2012 is a great one um and a wonderful book that came out it's a children's book but also is geared towards adults of course it's called shapeless shapes and that was um by hannah kim and amalda shakara um and there's also a great memoir called illegal among us a stateless woman's quest for citizenship from Martine Kala that are phenomenal thank you guys so much yes please learn about statelessness just to be able to talk about it and to share that statelessness is something that exists it's real and there are stateless people here is is really helpful in our work this was such a critical interview and most of us take citizenship for granted and i'm so glad i was able to bring ekaterina and karina on the show This is the first time I've spoken to stateless individuals. I've talked about their lived experiences. Please try to get more information. They've shared tons of resources that you can look into and support this organization. It is so important. It is important that every individual has human dignity and respect that they deserve. Take care.